Well, thank you very much to the worship team this morning for leading us in worship, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be able to be here this morning. And as Pastor Ben mentioned, uh, many of you may not know who I am. I don't always know who I am half the time, but uh, uh, I'm Dave Dietz, and our family has been attending here for the last uh, few months, and we're thankful for this opportunity, uh, thankful for Pastor Sam and the elders allowing me to speak this morning. My family is somewhere in the middle there. They probably don't want to be highlighted too much, but uh, we're thankful to be able to be here this morning and trust that you all had a great Thanksgiving and just a great opportunity to spend time as family and friends and to be able to enjoy uh, the time together uh, this last weekend. This morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the church at Ephesus this morning. It's a great text of Scripture as we examine through uh, this particular church and the instructions and the commendations that are given to this church, and then the lessons that are able to be gleaned as well from this particular text of Scripture. I want to begin this morning, though, by looking at the book of Ephesians, before you go to Revelation chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 6. Looking verse 23 and 24, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 and 24. These are the last two verses of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he's encouraging them, and he's concluded these six chapters, and he's concluding this book, and he comes to verse 23 and 24, because this is going to be very insightful as we then look at the text in Revelation chapter 2. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 and 24 says this, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's an amazing statement that Paul makes to this church. It's an amazing statement that he concludes the book of Ephesians with, where he states this, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That statement is going to have a significant part of the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we examine that this morning. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, We are so thankful to you, as we even read this morning, that your steadfast love endures forever. And Father, even when our love for you is not what it should be, our love for you is not faithful, not consistent, not pure, not genuine, Father, we're thankful that above all things, your love endures Father, this morning we pray that as we examine this particular text in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, that we would make proper applications to our church, to our lives, to us as believers. Father, we're dismayed as we see the number of churches and organizations uh, around this country continuing to depart or continuing to be destroyed, continuing to fall apart. Father, I pray that you would help us today to examine our own hearts, our own lives, 
and to ensure that we continue to love you with a love incorruptible. We thank you so much for all that you do for us. You're so good to us, and you're so faithful to us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I don't know if you've had a chance to travel around the country much, or you've had a chance to explore other churches. Greenville, South Carolina may not be the the greatest example of places to look at other churches. There's a lot of them here. We pastored, my wife and I were in ministry in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan for seven years. It seemed like uh, different kinds of stripes of churches. There were three or four on every corner. And our church was like a revolving door of people coming in and going out and visiting and trying to find what's the newest and latest and greatest and what do you have to offer us. But as we look across the landscape of America and we examine the, the landscape of churches in America today, we're often confronted with this reality that many that were once edifices that were built for worship and for instruction and for fellowship and, and for all the things that we think about when we think about church life, many of those today are no longer that. In fact, we could look at some churches that used to gather people together to, to preach the gospel, and we see them now as a, maybe a nightclub or a taekwondo facility or some other building that has been repurposed and reused and reinvented to meet some cultural need or some social need. Like a mum, we think about Thanksgiving times and we think about flowers like mums that, are, that we plant or we put into a planter by the front door that have a lot of beauty. When we, you get down into the middle of looking at that mum, you can see that it starts to die and it starts to decay, but yet there's still some life that exists that deceives us to think that that plant is okay. There's a lot of churches, a lot of organizations that are in that same predicament. Oh, they've got life, and they've got beauty, and they've got activities, and they've got programs, but if we were actually to get down into the middle of that church or that organization, we would see something that is dying, something that is maybe even dead. Charles Spurgeon, in an article published in The Sword and Trowel in December of 1889, said this, to compromise on leadership is the most suicidal act a church can commit. You see, when it comes to church life and it comes to all of the the aspects of the congregations, as Spurgeon would say, many of them actually are qualifying for being placed on suicide watch. They've got all the programs, they've got all the ministries, they've got people bustling in and out of them, but the reality is many of them are on a death spiral, and the sad reality is many don't even realize it. You say, well, we came for a Thanksgiving Sunday. This is not an encouraging Sunday. We're not starting off in the right direction here. I thought it was supposed to be warm and fuzzy, and we're supposed to just say thanks and, and go on our way. The reality is, as we examine a text like the book of Revelation chapter 2 describes for us with the church at Ephesus, the reality is a church like Palmetto Baptist Church or a church like any other church that we're familiar with or maybe a church that you attend while you're not here at school, for those of you that are students, the reality is for a church like this, we could be described like the book of Revelation chapter 2 describes the church at Ephesus. 
And so we want to look at this text this morning as we examine these these seven churches and, and the principles and the applications that are part of this particular book, this particular church. There's a lot of great things that we could be commended for, just like the church at Ephesus is commended for. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of consequences that God has given to this church. And so we want to look at this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is part of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Maybe you've studied through these. Maybe you've heard these seven churches preached on before. But the background to this particular set of verses is important for us as we examine these particular verses, these particular churches that are listed here in Revelation chapter 2. There's seven of them. They stand as relevant examples to us. They stand as relevant examples of, of things that went well and things that didn't go well. They preach much like maybe an Old Testament narrative where we draw the principles and the applications out from them to say, what is it about this church that God was wanting to communicate, that God was wanting to identify, that God was wanting to highlight some things, and what are some things that we need to glean from these churches? What are things that we need to be able to take away from these particular churches? Well, we look at this particular church, which is the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus here is given to us as an example. We know from the book of Ephesians, there, there's so many things that we can look at through the book of Ephesians, and then we can look at in the book of Acts that gives us insight into the church at Ephesus. We know that the city itself was a very important city in Asia Minor. We know that it was, for all practical purposes, the hub of immorality in Asia Minor. Ephesus was not a godly city. Ephesus was not a fantastic city. Ephesus was not the place that you would think, let's go there on a family vacation because that is going to be edifying for our family. This is the city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesians. We know that the temple of Artemis, it was known as Diana to the Romans, could seat 24,000 people. It was a massive structure. It was home to thousands of temple priestesses who were basically just there to fulfill everyone's physical desires that they had. The temple was 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet tall. 
I haven't done the dimensions on this building, but it's going to be similar to a size of this type of building or maybe a Walmart supercenter. That is a significant building. That's a significant temple, and it was the kind of the center of this entire area. It was considered by one to be some, one of the world's most natural wonders. And we can look at the book of Acts. In fact, let's turn over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 through 34, as we see Paul engaging with a group of men and others in Acts chapter 19 to give us some description of the temple of Artemis. Acts chapter 19, beginning verse 21. says this, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but, also, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. In other words, how dare Paul say such things? Paul is stealing their business. Verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanting to, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You think about the reality of what Paul is engaging in. I love the statement here where it says he wanted to go into the middle of them. He wanted to engage them, but his friends and others would not allow him to. This is a significant event, a, a significant outcry of people. Why? Because their entire livelihoods as, as silversmiths were potentially at risk. And for two hours, this crowd of people, most of them not even knowing why they were there or what they were doing or what was supposed to be happening, makes this ruckus, crying out for two hours with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it is into that environment 
that the church at Ephesus exists. Like we think about the reality of the cities that we live in and the, the cities that we engage in. Greenville, South Carolina is usually not thought of as one of the most horrific, corrupt cities in the world. Not that there's not sin here, there obviously is. But this is a significant issue. This is a significant event with a significant group of people who are screaming their praise and worship to the temple of Artemis. You say, well, how, how does that relate into our world today? What happens that we would even have any, any kind of analogy with? Well, we know in January 21st, 2017, if you remember, it was shortly after the inauguration of President Trump, and I could care less who the president is, but it was shortly after his inauguration, 500,000 women showed up in Washington, D.C., Elsewhere, it's estimated that another almost 4 million women came out around the world to protest. And what were they protesting? What were they demanding? They were demanding the right to kill their own children. You see, when we think about the church at Ephesus and we think about all that was going on in their society, we can look today and say there's not a whole lot that is different. There's not a whole lot that is different of what we deal with and what we face and all of the pressures that we're dealing with and all of the distractions that we're dealing with and all the temptations that are there. And how difficult is it for us to take a stand in a world that is worshiping and screaming for the things that satisfy their flesh? But we know that this church, the church at Ephesus, is about 40 years old when John writes to them. We know that... The church was started by Priscilla and Aquila. Acts chapter 18 reminds us of that. Acts chapter 19 reminds us that Apollos preached there. We know that the church was bolstered by a massive evangelistic effort. We saw that in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 19. So this is a significant church. This is a significantly impactful church into a corrupt city. This is the church at Ephesus. And this is the church that John is going to communicate and write to here as he communicates to us in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And so what do we begin to see as we look at this particular text and we look at this particular city? We see some commendations of them. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So John is communicating to them in Revelation chapter 2, and he says, listen, we all know the struggle that you have as a church existing and living and, and, and ministering in a corrupt city like Ephesus. And John says, we're commending you. God is commending them for all that they're doing. He's he's beginning this this section of their their book, and he's saying, we're commending you for what you're doing. And he commends them for four things. First of all, he commends them for their labor. You guys are working hard. The Greek word here is kopos, which doesn't really help you pay your bills on Friday, but it means wearisome effort. In other words, John is communicating to them and saying, listen, we know how hard you're working. 
We know how hard you're laboring. As someone who has been in full-time ministry as a pastor and now somebody who is not, I fully appreciate all that goes in to make this happen. There's a lot of details, a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of planning, a lot of details that makes just each Sunday go off without too much of a hitch. And some of you, as you labor and you minister and you serve and you you work in these capacities in church, you're weary and you're tired, but you're staying faithful and you're laboring for the cause of Christ, just like the church at Ephesus was. And John says, listen, you're commended for that. You're commended for your work. You're, You're commended for your labor. But then they're also commended for their patient endurance. They remained under the challenges and the trials and the difficulties and all the things that they had to deal with. Not only did they have challenges within the church, they had challenges outside the church. We see in Acts chapter 19, all of the things that were going on, all the challenges that they faced in the city that they were located in. And no doubt there were challenges within their particular church. I remember several years ago, I was pastoring in Michigan, and we had several men who became, uh, they kind of came forward and said, we'd like to serve as deacons. And, and I told them, I said, you know, I said, I think you're going you're gonna to see a different side of church life. All of these men had been part of like some mega churches in the Grand Rapids area, and they had come to our church, and they had never really served in leadership before. They were great guys. And I told them, I said, I just, I just think you're going to see a different side of church life once you come into leadership. And I remember one of them telling me, ah, you know, Dave, I'm 63 years old. I don't really think there's anything else I can really see. I, don't, I, don't, I think I'm going to be okay. And about six months in, after he became a deacon, after about six months in, he came to me and he goes, you know, he goes, actually, I'd like to say I'm sorry. Because he said, I never realized all of the struggles and all of the challenges that exist within a body of believers. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of struggles. There's a lot of challenges that exist. And John is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, listen, we we commend you that you are patient. You patiently endure week after week, not only with each other, but with the world that you live in and the world you exist in. But then he says, we commend you, thirdly, for how you cannot bear with those who are evil. They were intolerant of the evil that was around them. That is significant. All of the pressures, all of the social pressures and temptations and struggles that existed in that city, and the church at Ephesus was commended because they not only were wearisome in their effort, working hard, they were patient, but they were intolerant of the evil that was around them. That is significant. That's why Paul, as he reminded them in Ephesians chapter 4, that they not live as Gentiles do who live in every kind of impurity. Paul reminded the Ephesians, hey, you are doing a great job not allowing the culture, not allowing society to impact and influence and change and alter who you are. That's a significant commendation. And included within that commendation is their hatred of the Nicolaitans. As he says down in verse 6, he kind of adds this as an addendum. Verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
This is the church at Ephesus amidst the great temple of Artemis, against all the, the wickedness that they lived in, all the things that they dealt with, and all the challenges that they had. John says, listen, you are to be commended. You're to be commended for your labor. You're to be commended for your patience. You're to be commended for your intolerance of evil. You're to be commended for all the things that you are doing. You have not succumbed to the pressures of this world. You have remained faithful amidst the challenges that you face. But then there's a fourth commendation. As you look back up in verse 2 and 3, the fourth commendation is that they examine their leaders. He says this, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I cannot tell you how significant that particular phrase is. When I was finishing up my dissertation, I wrote on the topic of selecting elders, and I did a, just a small little survey of about 70 churches that had different backgrounds, different stripes, different denominations, and I asked, one of the questions that I asked these 70 churches, how many of you actually ask doctrinal questions of prospective elders? Of the 70 churches, only two wrote back and said, we actually ask doctrinal questions of our prospective elders. Most of them wrote back and said, as long as they verbally agree that this is what we believe and teach, we'll be good with them as elders. Well, that's a direct violation of Titus chapter 1, verse 9, which states that an elder must know God's word, must be able to teach God's word, and must be able to defend God's word. As we engage in churches in our ministry that I serve in across the U.S., a number of churches would be guilty of this aspect, of just simply saying, you know, we need leaders in our churches, and you've got warm blood flowing through you, and you don't complain too much, so guess what? You get to be a leader. And then we wonder why our churches are facing the demise that they are facing. And we wonder why in 1889, Charles Spurgeon stated the most suicidal act a church can commit is to compromise on leadership. And here, amidst everything that was going on, amidst all the challenges that were taking place, amidst everything that was happening, Paul, or John rather, is commending them. He says, listen, you're to be commended. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. You guys are doing a fantastic job. Like if we were just to stop at verse 2 and 3 and look at this and say, well, let's give the church at Ephesus a grade. What kind of grade would they be getting? They would be getting like probably 101 or 2 because they'd probably get some bonus points thrown in because they were doing so well. They're laboring hard. They're patiently enduring. They're examining their leaders. They're intolerant of evil. They are doing a fantastic job. Say, man, this is like the model church. This is the church that everybody should be a part of. This is the church that, that we should want to be part of and be a member of. But then we come into verse 4. But I have this against you. And this is where the tide starts to turn. Like in this moment where you kind of like, you know, I remember when I was in school and you, you think you have all the assignments done. And then you, you hand them all in, and then you realize, like, I missed a whole page of assignments. 
You get that kind of like hot flash, like, oh my word, I can't believe I did this. This is kind of that moment in verse 4, but I have this against you. Wait a minute. Did we miss something? Because you just commended us for four significant things. You just commended us for all of these things in verses 2 and 3, and now we come into verse 4, and John is communicating, but I have this against you. There's a problem with us? There's an issue we didn't do? There's, there's something we forgot to do? There, there's some problem that you're going to expose? I thought we were doing an amazing job amidst a difficult circumstance. I thought we were doing an amazing job amidst a difficult societal pressures. And God communicates this in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is one of those moments where if you're the church at Ephesus and you're getting this letter, it's kind of like a quietness that would just kind of seep across the room to go, wow, wait a minute. I'd like to push back a little bit, God. You're you're really, after you just commended me, you just commended our assembly for, for our labor. You just commended our assembly for our intolerance of evil and our patient endurance and our checking out our leadership, you you seriously are going to tell us that we did something wrong. And God is going to say, absolutely, I'm going to tell you, you did something wrong. This, This is what I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What did they do? They stopped loving God, and they stopped loving others. You say, what? Like, come on. Like, we're doing all of these things. Doesn't that count for something good? Yeah, it does. You guys are fantastic in this area. You're doing a great job in this area. But I have something against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Amidst everything they did right. All of the things they did right, God is condemning them for not loving him and not loving others. This is the great commandment. According to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, it says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they'd gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, well, yeah, we know the great commandment. We know that we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We know that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We know that we're supposed to do all these things, but... Look at all the great things that we're doing. Look at all the programs that we have, and look at all the ministries that we have, and look at all the fantastic ways we are standing up against society. Doesn't that count for anything? What can we conclude from this particular condemnation? The church at Ephesus was guilty of checking boxes. They were guilty of going through the motions. They were guilty 
of taking all of their works that they had done, all the things that they were just commended for, and saying, listen, in light of the difficult city we live in, in light of the difficult surroundings we have, let us elevate these things as they look at our labor, look at our patient endurance, <clears throat> look at our intolerance of evil, look at the fact that we check out our, uh, our leadership. Doesn't that count for something? And God says, it's great, but it's not what I asked of you. I asked that you love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. See, the church at Ephesus was guilty of violating the preeminence of Christ. Man, they were doing a great job. They were working hard. They were being faithful. They refused to give in to all the things around them. But at the end of the day and all through the day, you know what God cared about? God cared more that they didn't love him than what they were doing. You see, well, I thought we were, I thought we were supposed to work hard until Christ comes back. I thought we were supposed to be faithful to labor and just to work and do all these things that Christ is asking us to do. Isn't that what God wants? Yes, God wants our service. Yes, God wants our ministry. Yes, God wants us to serve him with the talents and the abilities that he has given to us. But God never wants those to the exclusion of our love for him. I remember when I was first entering into ministry, some probably almost 25 years ago, I was taking my first job as a youth pastor in Farmington, New Mexico, and I remember the, the pastor telling me, Dave, no man is irreplaceable. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, yeah, that's a nice, that's a nice statement. No man is irreplaceable. But if you're really good, like it might be kind of hard for God to replace you. Like, if you're really talented or you're really gifted, like, God might think twice about replacing you because he probably needs the really talented people. And as I've served in ministry now for 20-some years, I would say this, no man is irreplaceable, regardless of how capable, talented, or how awesome you may be. Because at the end of the day, God does not need you. God wants you. He wants a relationship with you. See, the challenge for many of us, myself included, is we grew up in an environment that was performance-based. And we come to God, we come to God with this bucket of all the things that we've done. Like, I do this. I come to God, and I can write it out, and I can say, like, hey, uh, let me... Let me, in case you forgot, or in case you weren't watching, let me remind you of what I have done. Six weeks ago, I did this. Four weeks ago, I did this. For the last 20 years, I've been doing this. And we hand this to God. Like somehow, this is supposed to make up for a relationship that he wants to have with us. And in performance-based ministries, performance-based environments, it's very easy for us to lift up the bucket of our performance and say, God, isn't this what you wanted? God, isn't this what you're supposed to be offered? Like Cain and Abel coming with our sacrifices. And we hold up the bucket of performance to God and say, listen, why can't you just be good with that? And God says, I, 
I am happy with that. I, I love the fact that you serve, but the fact that you have left your love for me is what grieves my heart. It's what grieves me. So the consecration that they were supposed to do, what were they supposed to do? Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. When I am confronted with the fact that maybe I am offering to God my performance as opposed to my heart, that maybe when I'm offering to God my, my obligatory duties as opposed to the things that I get to do because of my relationship with him, when I'm at that point where I say, this is what I'm doing, what do I need to do? I need to repent. I need to remember where I've been. I need to repent of what I'm doing, and I need to return to the original practice, which is what? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And some of you may be sitting here going, okay, wait a second, Dave. I'm sorry. I just need to interrupt. Um, I run this ministry. So if you're telling people that God just wants them to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind, I may not have workers next week because people may check out of doing the things that they're supposed to do. And that is the vulnerability of the Christian walk, is it not? That maybe as a church... And I'm not, I don't know enough about Palmetto yet to make any accusations. I'm not making any accusations. But maybe we get to the point where we're so concerned about all the doing and we've lost sight of the love relationship God intends for us to have with him. One of the greatest joys I have is serving in some of our ministries in Tanzania and in Kenya and Uganda and other places in East Africa and many other places around the world where literally you're underneath a tin metal roof with some poles that you're not quite sure are going to hold anything up with open sewage running through the area and people singing at the top of their lungs about how good God is to them. There is nothing more humbling than dealing with that situation where you realize, you know what, maybe there's some times, Dave, when you are more interested in all you've done than just being interested in having that relationship with God. That's a possibility for all of us. Remember where you've been. Repent of what you've done wrong. Return to your original practice. That's what God is reminding them. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. It's a very simple process. I mean, it's going to be a little complicated because we need to be humble. But God is not telling them to do some penance. God is not telling them to walk on their knees for miles. God is not telling them to, to whip themselves. God is just simply saying, listen, when you're confronted with the fact that maybe you've elevated performance over a love for Christ, just stop it. Repent of what you've done. Remember where you came from and go back and do that. That's what God is asking. So we can sit there and say, okay, well, that, that, seems, that seems fine. That seems reasonable. But the, honestly, the phrase I struggle with, one of the phrases in the Bible I struggle with the most comes next. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. And this is the point at which Dave Dietz would step back and say, okay, God, I was tracking with you for the most part. I was tracking with you that I can't elevate my performance over my love for you. And God, I was tracking with the fact that, that you're thankful for what I've done, but that, that you wanted a relationship with me. And God, I'm, I'm tracking with the fact that, listen, I need to remember where I've been. I need to repent. I need to go back and do what you've asked me to do. God, I can, I can, I can wrap my head around all of that. But honestly, for me, this phrase is one of the hardest ones I struggle with in Scripture. If you don't do that, I will remove your lampstand. The lampstand that's referring to is the source of light that is being cast out. What God is reminding them is, listen, if you do not do what I've asked you to do, I will remove your light from you. I will close down the church, the local assembly. I will remove you from that existence. And in my mind, that's the most ludicrous thing I could ever think to write. Like, God, did you forget that the city of Ephesus is one of the most corrupt, wicked cities? God, did you forget that there are 24,000 priestesses that exist in this temple? God, did you forget about Acts chapter 19 when people rioted for two hours, screaming out, great is the, uh, the temple at Artemis? God, did you forget about all the things that are going on in this world around Ephesus? And God, you seriously are more interested in a love for you than you are in performance, so much so that you're willing to snuff out the light of this church at Ephesus? Like, God, I can track with you over a lot of things, but I'm really struggling tracking that one. God, why wouldn't you just say, you know what? Hey, guys, you just do your thing. Keep doing it, and I'll just go somewhere else. And I'll bless another church, and I'll bless another body. But you guys can keep existing, and you guys can keep going, and just keep doing your performance. And, you know, our relationship will kind of have a breach in it, but it's okay. Like, why wouldn't God do that? Why would you threaten to remove the lampstand from the city of Ephesus all over the fact that they didn't love you like you were supposed to? Like we live in an age where young people are questioning the reality of God and questioning the logic of God and questioning why is God this way? And if we're not careful, we can fall right into that thought process here, like I do, and sit there and go, hey, wow, that's, a, that's, like, that's an extreme position to take in my mind. But the reality is that God cares more about your love for him than your performance to him. God cares more about what you do, or cares more about your relationship with him than what you do. That's a, quite a reminder. See, here's the reality. God doesn't want you as some indentured slave who mindlessly works and labors while dutifully checking off an eternal to-do list. God wants you. He wants a relationship with you, and he wants you to want him and have a vibrant love and passion for him that focuses on the relationship, not the rules or the requirements. For a lot of my life growing up, God and church and all of that 
was just a to-do list. It's just a bunch of requirements I have to do. It's just a bunch of motions I have to go through. It's just a bunch of boxes I have to check. And I know how to smile and nod and be happy while I'm checking all of those boxes. And inside, I have no relationship with him the way he intended me to. We go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 and 24. Remember what Paul said, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. See, at some point over the course of those 40 years, the church at Ephesus went from loving God with love incorruptible to being in danger of being shut down because they had left their love for God and were guilty of going through the motions. Man, that's sobering. You say, well, this is not a good Thanksgiving message. Preach on Psalm 100. We can talk about being thankful. I think it actually is a great Thanksgiving message because it reminds us of the mercy of our Savior who loves us who cares for us. As we read this morning from Lamentations, his steadfast love endures forever. That even when I don't love him, he still loves me. See, God will not love me any more than he loves me right now. And God will not love me any less than he loves me right now. And when we function in a performance-based Christianity, we miss out on the fact that God wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind and to allow ourselves to have that relationship with him. So what are four things that we need to do? First of all, we must ensure that Christ remains preeminent within our church or organization. Make sure that Christ remains preeminent that no matter what, we always see him and value him and view him and place him with the highest priority in all that we do and all that we say. Second of all, we must ensure that each generation loves Christ as passionately as possible. I don't want to go off on too much of a rabbit trail here, but as being in ministry for 20-some years, there is, a, there is a false ideology that exists some from the older generation and some from the younger. But as the older generation looks at the younger, it's easy for them to say, well, they don't love God the way we did. No, they may not express themselves in the same exact way you did. But that does not mean that the younger generation does not love God. Instead of comparing and contrasting ourselves with the methodologies of how we expressed our worship to God, we should be more interested in saying, do you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? And that may look different in its expression. But we have generational wars that are going on in churches across America because methodologies or expressions are a little bit different than they were 50, 60, 70 years ago. Let's stop fighting the generational wars and actually figure out how a 9-year-old and a 90-year-old serve and worship side by side for the cause of Christ. Thirdly, we must ensure that we are advancing the cause of Christ 
and not our own cause. What furthers the cause of Christ? What advances the cause of Christ? And then fourthly, we must embrace the mercy and grace of Christ when people fail to love God and others as they should. God is so merciful to us. There are plenty of situations I can look back on and say, I was just simply going through the motions, just simply checking a box, just simply trying to do the performance thing, and God was merciful to me and gracious to me. And we must embrace that. We must say, thank you, God, for your love and for your mercy to us that even though you love us with a steadfast love, your steadfast love never fails. It endures for all generations. Thank you for being so gracious to me to allow me to have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to step away from a performance eternal to-do list to a relationship with you. That's what God desires. Does Palmetto Baptist Church, and better yet, we could say this, do each one of us love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind? Or are we content to lift up our performance and ask God to substitute that for a relationship with him? Let's pray.